You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. What are the threads that connect us to our true past? Out of the darkness into the light. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, we start with John Searles. He's got a new book out there called Her Last Affair. And after the break, here's the quiz. What is a jackalope? Michael P. Branch will tell us it's an amazing story. John Searles, His Last Affair, is his newest book. Quote, John Searles brings the misfits among us to life with the clarity of Carson McCullers and the scares, and he scares us with the brilliance of Stephen King. And that's a quote from the author of Red Lotus. Before I butcher his last name, John, how do you pronounce Chris's last name? I know he's uh, Arminian. Chris Bojelian is the author of The Flight Attendant, which is a right. hit series on HBO Max. He wrote the book, and you said The Red Lotus, Hour of the Witch. And I'm honored to have Chris Bojelian's words on the cover, so thank you. <laughs> Well, it's, it's in the proper place, and thank you for the proper pronunciation because I didn't want to butcher it, and you did it much better than I would. When I sit down to prepare for an interview, especially this podcast, and I have the book in my hands, in this case your book, Her Last Affair, I'm wondering how is the writer going to shape this story? Because I think it's almost something that's underreported. We go from page to page to page. We talk about the characters and the narrative and as it moves along through the course of the story. So I'm going to extrapolate from that, John Searles. How, as you, as a writer, and your life shape what you do? Uh, you know, my sister gave me a t-shirt years ago that said on the t-shirt, careful or you're and you'll end up in my novel <laughs> and so i think she kind of hit the nail on the head because i you know i don't know i don't consciously think about what i'm going to use but i think i'm always watching and observing and and asking people questions and recording it in the back of my mind and then when i sit down to write things that experiences i've had get tangled up in my imagination and some twisted version of it all comes out on the page and I don't really control how it happens or do it conscience, consciously. It just happens. But I want to go back a little further. So I try to explore this. Okay. I tell everybody, at least I try to tell everybody or ask everybody that there's two stories. One story is between the covers of the book. The other story is the origin story of the writer himself, in this case, you. So let's kind of go back to where you came from and what did shape you become what you are today. Um, very, very successful in everything that you've done. Thank you. Thank you. Um, well, I didn't uh, grow up in a family where it looked like I would go on to become a writer or anything like that. I, you know, I grew up in a very little home in New England, and uh, we had two bedrooms, one bathroom. We had four kids, my grandfather, my mom, my dad, dogs, cats, fish, birds, uh, very crowded, colorful house. And my dad was a cross-country truck driver, and uh you know, I was, I didn't know I was gay, but I, the other boys somehow picked up on it way before I did. And they just bullied me terribly. And so I often after school would go to the library and was safe there. It was a little hideaway. And I just developed a love of reading. And then also, uh, my father being a cross country truck driver, I often say my parents would send me on the road some summers with my dad to quote, make a man out of me. Right. I always joke they didn't, they didn't get the results they wanted, <laughs> but on those trips, my dad would buy me the mass market paperbacks at the truck stops. Like one summer he bought me Stephen King's The Shining. He bought me a John Irving novel, I remember. And it wasn't like I would go with him all summer, but I would go off for a week or two and then come back home and, but the trips were kind of a little boring to me. And so I would read on those trips and my mom had a huge Sydney Sheldon collection of all Sydney Sheldon's mass market paperbacks. And I would take those on the road and read like the other side of midnight. And I loved that book. If tomorrow comes <laughs> those books. And I was probably 12. So I was not the intended audience as a 12 year old boy to be reading Sydney Sheldon, but but that's what I was reading. And, you know, I, I joked that at night, these uh, 
ladies would knock on the door of the truck and my dad would be sleeping in the bunk in the back and I'd be sleeping in what's called the doghouse between right. the two seats. But I would be reading with a flashlight and they would, I remember them banging on the door and I would look out the window and would say, Dad, there's these ladies here. And he would say, just ignore them. And they would say, you want some company up there, big boy? And I'd be like, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm 12, first of all, and also I'm reading Cindy Sheldon. So no. <laughs> Here's what interests me because we tend to be static in time and place. And certainly when you're writing, you're in like your own universe, but it's kind of static in a sense. When you're on the road with your dad and you're moving and moving and moving and also reading, does that change the way that you interpret what you do? Because movement is a whole nother world. And the fact that you're in that world with your father at a young age and reading, does that shape you differently? Um, I guess it just taught me early on the, the possibility of having two lives, the one you're in, but also the the one you can escape to. And um, so when I was bored or things were very stressful around me, because as I said, I had a very loving, colorful family, but also my parents married extremely young. They were teenagers. My dad, may he rest in peace, he just passed a couple summers ago in a motorcycle accident. But so may he rest in peace. I love him, but he was... He loved the ladies and he loved to, he loved a good bar and he loved to drink. And so a part of my childhood was spent driving around at night looking for him and going to bars and pulling him out and going to his girlfriend's house and, you know, things like that. So when things were stressful in that way, I could escape into a book and it felt like a safe place, if that makes sense. And how I said, we grew up in this little house with one bathroom. That my mother, there would be TVs on in every single room, so much chaos. There was nowhere to have quiet. And I would go into the bathtub, and that's where I would do my homework and I would read. And I still, to this day, I wrote part of her last affair, a big part, in the bathtub, actually. So it's still kind of a nice hideaway space for me. That's funny because the bathtub sounds like, and I'm not making this up, your own personal safe harbor. So let's let's move along from that a little bit because Gabriel Garcia Marquez once said, we have yes. three lives. We have a public life, a private life, and a secret life. And I think about some of the characters in your book, public life, yeah. private life, and certainly with some of them in a very dramatic and troubling way, a very secret life. Would you agree with that? Yes. Well, the first sentence of the book is every marriage has its secrets, which kind of says it right up front. This is going to be a book about people with secrets. And the title is called Her Last Affair. You know, I have to tell you, Larry, you, I've been so blessed to get a wonderful reader reviews, a great People magazine review, all these wonderful reviews. But of course, I focus on the negative ones. And someone posted a review saying, I didn't like this book. Someone was having an affair in it. <laughs> I said, <laughs> Well, maybe you should read the title. It's called Her Last Affair. But uh, affairs imply secrets. And uh, yes, it's uh, three seemingly separate storylines uh, that come together in the second half of the book. And each of the three characters definitely has at least one secret, if not more. So writers would call this, and students of writing would call this foreshadowing. I call it very simplistically breadcrumbs and little reveals during the course of the story. And I think the way that you do that, because we start off and I, I'm thinking with your first character, Kayla, right? Skyler. I get yeah. them confusing when I'm writing that stuff, yeah. getting confused. Um, and she's the, kind of the first character to meet. And I think this book is really about memories, which fascinates me because she's losing her vision. And I'm wondering if the clarity of her, me her memories are sharper because she can't see as well. And then later on, as the book unfolds, no spoiler alerts, uh, we get different points of view of every main character in the book. So tell, tell us about the way that you do what writers do call foreshadowing, what I call breadcrumbs and a little bit of reveals because they're just kind of thrown in there and each one comes out and the turns start to happen in the narrative well you know i was just telling this story last night the, at a event the event i did with the actress amy ryan and 
uh, I was talking, she asked if I faced any rejection in my career. And, you know, I was a waiter for 12 long years. I put myself through college and graduate school and waited tables when I was first trying to become a writer. And I, and this is coming back to answering your question. So I haven't forgotten what you asked, but I, I sent, I met an editor at a big publishing house who said, you don't need an agent. You can send your, so I had written my first book that never got published, but she said, just send me the manuscript. And I sent it to her. And, um, about a month later, I got the manuscript back in a box with a very polite kind of rejection letter on the top and I pulled the manuscript out of the box and a little scrap of paper fell to the floor from inside it was a note from an in-house reader that was mistakenly left inside the box and it said I could barely make it to page 60 and I feel really badly for anyone who has to read the whole thing wow and it was crushing at the time and devastating and I thought I'd never write again but actually to go back to your question about foreshadowing and breadcrumbs uh it was kind of a what they call a teachable moment because I thought well I never want anyone to have that experience reading my books so I I work really hard from page one paragraph one sentence one to create a sense of to create foreshadowing to create a mood and atmosphere to pull the reader in and so I'm con from that first sentence, every marriage has its secrets, but then even by page two, by page three, by page four, we start, we start to learn little details that this woman, Skyla, she was a nurse, her husband passed away in a freak accident in the woods before their 50th wedding anniversary. Why is she taking an attendant? So I start immediately putting, as you call them, breadcrumbs out because I don't want ever, anyone to ever barely make it to page 60. I want people to pick up my books and tear through them and find them not find also meaning in them, not just tear through them in a purely entertainment way, but I want a mix of entertainment and also art at the same time. You know? I, I want to follow up that in my own simplistic way. And here's like my kind of overview that you can kind of tear apart. But in a sense, the book is the early part of the book for me, the narrative is like foreplay. Because there's a lot of it's a very sexual book in a sense. And very emotional in the beginning. In the beginning. <laughs> and then ultimately it leads to a dramatic climax and conclusion. And I think what you're kind of addressing is love, lost and found and lost. Am I in the ballpark at all? You are in the ballpark, Larry. That's exactly. I keep saying to people, it's not really a love story, but it's a story about love. You know, it's very much about that. These people in our lives who once had so much power over us and who held such a big place in our hearts and our minds, and then they're not in our lives anymore. And it's about two of the characters in the book. As I said, there's three seemingly disconnected characters. There's Skyla, the main narrator, who lost her husband, who she ran the drive-in with for 50 years. There's Linnell, a housewife, kind of and a mom in a bad marriage, who hears one morning from her very first love on Facebook, I've never stopped thinking about you all these years. And she begins an online affair with him. And then another seemingly disconnected character, Jeremy, a writer who gets an assignment to go back to Providence, Rhode Island, to cover a restaurant, and it's the site of his first great love and his first great heartbreak and he looks up his he looks up the woman who broke his heart and they go to dinner together so it's all people grappling with issues of love and you know i think during the pandemic a lot of people were reconnecting with people from their past remember there was that phase of everyone reaching out and so i think it was very top of mind for me that those connections for the person we are now and the person we once were and so i wanted to explore that in the book so let's reset this is the podcast art for periscope i'm larry davidson my guest john searles a new york times best-selling award-winning writer has appeared on nbc today show cbs the morning show npr Fresh Air with Terry Gross. By the way, one of my go-to podcasts is Fresh Air with Terry Gross. When I'm working oh, on she's the greatest. I, I listen to this. So hopefully this is not too much of a come down to you to be on Artful Periscope. No, it's, it's an honor, Larry. But honor. I, I am I am thrilled to have you. So I'm gonna I'm I i want to mention a name that I'm always want I wanna be entertained, but I wanna walk away from reading the book, preparing for the interview by learning something learning something about the art and craft of storytelling through you and some of the other guests we've had in the past. But also, there's a name I came across, named Carl Tanzler, 
who was a radiologist, and he was involved with um, a woman named Elena Helen Milagrago, I believe her name. And immediately, because both you and I, you set the book off with quotes from every single movie. And I'm thinking, I'm reading this, and I'm thinking about the quintessential movie psycho so who was this man is it was he a, was he a real character or did you create him carl tanzler was a real character and since the book is about in some ways about the extreme things people will do for love and to feel loved i wanted to use some real life examples so i researched some really extreme and bizarre things that have happened in history. And Carl Tanzler was a radiologist, I believe in Key West. Uh, and he fell in love with a patient of his and then she, it's very dark and gruesome, sorry to everyone listening, but when she died, he dug up her corpse and tr tried to kind of, I don't know, use the corpse as a way to keep her alive. And and I think eventually he was maybe arrested or put, I can't remember now, because I when I wrote the book, I did the research at the time, but so I don't remember the exact specifics, but it didn't end well for him. But um, so I, I put those real examples in because the book gets into some extreme things that people have right. Right. driven to do because of heartbreak and love and desire and passion. And I didn't, I wanted to kind of a nod to the reader of like, this this is the spirit of the story. It's about extremes people do for love. Now, I, I don't know if you have much time to watch television or do you care to watch television, but there was a great documentary on recently about the history of what we call movie theaters, but really were movie palaces going from the 1920s to the 1950s. And it's amazing because they were ornate. Um, the architecture inside was amazing. Some of them still exist. In fact, there's one in L.A. that's now become a drugstore. Uh, there was another one that became a gymnasium for LIU campus in Brooklyn. There's another one being renovated in Chicago as we speak. And even though they were so spectacular, anybody could buy a movie ticket and go in. So when I'm reading your book and I'm thinking about cultural touchstones. Now, there's a very dramatic scene in the book at a diner. But also, there is an abandoned, in a sense, which is a very important character in the book of a drive-in that you create for the story. These are cultural touchstones, but you use them in a very interesting way. What a dramatic happening inside and outside a diner, which you can talk about if you want, but also the drive-in itself, because you set up every single chapter with a movie quote. And I, as a movie fan... Um, I just watched recently on TCM, Key Largo, with a great cast and a great film. And it's a Key Largo uh, quote in this book. So you had me, as they say, from the moment I opened the book, you had from the get-go, as I'm paraphrasing from one of the movies that I've seen. So put all those elements together and how it came together for you. <laughs> well, the first thing I will say, pardon me, Larry, thank you, first of all, for noticing those things. You know, whenever I go home to see my mom, I pass, we, we have a little house on Sag Harbor. And so when I go to see my mom, I drive to the Port Jeff Ferry in Port Jefferson, Long Island. And I pass an old drive-in movie theater that's shuttered and abandoned or and it's off the side of the road. And no one probably notices it because the sign is hidden behind trees but i always notice it and i stare at it kind of obsessively whenever i pass and i you know it's just abandoned back there and i always wonder about it who owned it what was it like in its heyday who owns it now you know it'll probably be paved down and made a shopping mall but i ended up googling old drive-ins and to first just find out about that one and then it led me to kind of an obsession i started googling just old drive-ins all around the country. And I found the most haunting and beautiful images of these places all across America, forgotten by time. And it just seemed like such an evocative setting for a story. And I thought, well, Stephen King hasn't used it, so I better hurry and <laughs> do it for him. No, but then I also thought when I was writing the book and you talked about the movie quotes that open each chapter, you know, there is, my book's 
get categorized as thrillers, but I don't really think of myself as a thriller writer. I just think of myself as a storyteller. And my books, I don't think really are straight thrillers. They're character studies, and I try to make them a little funny, I hope, and meaningful, and then thrillery too. But because this is three separate storylines, I felt like I needed a sense of cohesion for the reader. So I thought one way to do that would be to open each chapter with a movie quote. So it makes these three storylines all part of the same thing. And so then then it was really doubly fun, Larry, because I had the quotes act as clues as to what's going to happen in the story in the chapter and what's going to happen, maybe hinting at the mystery for some. And some of the quotes were classics like Casablanca. Others were um, more sinister like Psycho right. or The Shining. And then some were just forgotten 80s fluff like overboard or mannequin and so it was just really great fun for me to put these quotes together and i think i hope fun for the reader um to see the quote and once they clue in oh this quote is a clue about what's going to happen and so um so i don't know it's just great to do that and and have it come together and also because it's set at a drive-in it makes sense that you'd have the quotes and it talks about when they played at the drive-in and you know this couple ran the drive-in for 50 years and so of course that would be such a part of their spirit all of that so another movie reference uh, body heat william hurt just as uh died recently yeah, and kathleen turner which another great film so you're also dealing with uh, what i call in this book to various degrees of success or failure the art of seduction yeah. you want to follow up on that with some of your characters and what they're going through well uh, yes so there's you know there's a funny line where linnell who's um as i said she's She's a mom, but her daughter's away overseas for a year, a special school program. And she, a, a, a photo from her teenage years when she was a Disney princess, that's what she did which for work when she was a teenager, yeah. surfaces on the internet. And she gets kind of quote unquote canceled because it's a, was a harmless at the time to her picture, but it offends people and because it's kind of sexual and nature but not too so much so anyway so she's fired from her job and she's in a kind of a boring marriage with this guy and well, as i said she hears from her very first love and they begin an online affair and there's a line that kind of made me laugh when i wrote it it says plenty of people are seasoned experts when it comes to playing with themselves in front of a laptop linnell was not one of them <laughs> because she tries she's trying to have online sex for the first time and she's uh, you know a woman about to turn 50 it's really awkward for her she's never done anything like this but she also is wants us desperately some excitement in her life and so um there is a seduction going on there between her and her first love and then it, the book flashes back to when they first met and you know there's this line where she's she says she once heard that you can tweak your how we met story by adding the words in paris at the end and you know for years i was an editor at cosmopolitan magazine and that was a tip once in the magazine if you're if you met in some boring way just add in paris at the end like oh, let's do it larry ready we met in line at the pharmacy in paris in paris am it I, makes it am so I, much better am i hired do i'm gonna get more a bigger audience now for this podcast so i say at the end of every podcast by the way thank you very much and we'll see you in paris in paris see people just like to hear in paris so um so there's some seduction in that too because she you you see the way her the way she first met her first love was so much more enchanting and auspicious than the way she met her husband which was her her ATM card got stuck in the, her debit card got stuck in the ATM and she went in the bank to complain right. and he was the manager and that's how they met. And then in comparison, the, the, the story she tells, which I won't get into, but when she tells the story of how she met her first love, it's much more unique and enchanting. And it just, um, you can see why she would always hold a candle for this guy. So I just finished. Sometimes I read just for pleasure and not working. This is not work, by the way. This is a kid in a candy store for me because I get access to people like you for many, many years. But I just finished reading Billy Sumner's, um, the new Stephen oh. King book. And the way, he's a master of what he does in terms of yeah. character development. So I'm going to mention two characters. This is where the, the book kind of takes a big turn and gets into, in a sense, Stephen King territory. Marianne. Mm -hmm. And Jeremy, oh, yeah. 
and their yeah. relationship. And there is a scene that goes back and forth between a playground and them yeah. together in her apartment or house. And once again, when we first see some of their characters, you kind of peel the layers away. There are a lot of layers to Jeremy. And as you peel more and more away, we get inside his psychology or maybe even his psychosis. And I'm not a psychologist. Maybe that's the word, wrong word to describe him. But the way that you, once again, talk about shaping a book and shaping a character, what you did with Jeremy revealing him. And there's another big reveal as the book unfolds. I'm not going to give away. But I'm saying, you got me because I wasn't, I didn't know where it's going, but I'm going through the book making my notes. I'm not blowing smoke at you. This is the sign of a very sophisticated writer that what you did with not all your characters, with all your characters, characters, but especially Jeremy. Thank you so much, Larry. Um, yes, I worked really hard on all of these characters and all of this book and I work you know I don't write a book a year like a lot of writers do and it takes me time and a lot of trial and error and tweaking and adjustment and Jeremy was actually the first character I started writing of the book even though Sky was kind of the star of it right. uh, Jeremy was the first character and uh, so much about him is you know, it's not, you don't see it right away. It takes some time. And that's how it is with a lot of people. You know, people present and they seem perfectly normal. And then as you get to know them, sometimes you start to get an uh-oh feeling or, oh, I didn't know that. And that's how it is with him. Like in the beginning, there's, you, you get that he's kind of quirky and weird. And then, you know, there's some really funny scenes when he's asked to take care of this ridiculously overquaffed standard poodle that belongs to his ex-girlfriend and he sees it as a possible way to maybe get back together with one of his ex-girlfriends so he's taking care of this dog and it's kind of all used for good humor but then um things really take a turn so it's kind of um it just reveals itself slowly and marianne you know i just wanted it to be that they did have the sweetness and a friendship but she just didn't love him, quote, in that way and how heartbreaking that always was for him. And, you know, she overheard him say something really horrible and mean years ago. And he's already a troubled guy. And it just broke his heart and sent him literally running from that playground, running from the town. And he hasn't been able to work up the courage to look her up for almost 30 years. And then he finally does. And they go to dinner. And it's an eventful night, to say the least. <laughs> I always want to know. And I think you are leading us in that direction as the book ends. I want to know, I think about movies and TV programs that I really, really like that end. What is happening to the characters after we leave them behind? And the classic example of that is Roots. Because as Roots unfold, people are getting left behind as other people come forward. And there's people still left behind. I think, well, what happened to them? We never know. So I think an awful lot about... And you can take this any way you want about the characters that you leave behind as a writer. Do you think about them or you just move on to your next project? Uh, I do. You can't help it. You know, what's strange but true, my book, it was set at these old motel cabins. And Thomas and I, we pass these old kind of motel cabins all the time. They're not the ones I based, was inspired by for the original book, but I always say, oh, there's Melissa Moody's house. That was the character's name. And I say, there's her house where we pass something else. And I say, oh, there's that, because I use different things that we see, like the drive-in sometimes. Right. And so they always live in my mind. And, you know, with some cases, like Strange But True, I was lucky it was adapted for film. And so in some ways, it brought it back to life. They did change things from the book, but it was brought back to life for me. Again, being able to go to the set and see these people, wonderful actors like Margaret Qualley, who was in The Star of Made on Netflix, and Nick Robinson, who was also in Made on Netflix. And to see these fantastic Brian Cox, who was in Succession, or Blythe Danner, or Amy Ryan or Greg Kinnear, all of them acting out these characters I created. So so that brought them all back to life for me. And it was a really incredible experience. And um, 
you know, you live with, I live with these books for so long. So by the time I publish them, I, I know I move on and I have nothing more to give the characters or to give the book. And so I just, it means a lot to me when I talk to someone like you or hear from readers that they're meeting them for the first time and experiencing them and their strangeness and their, you know, their sweetness. And for this book, you know, there's a refrain of, um, it's a, as I said, it's a lot about love. And Skyla, when she worked as a nurse, she for years would read romance novels to right. pass the time when her patients were asleep on the ward. And so she talks a lot about love stories. And she says, says, what makes a good love story? As Linnell asked her when they finally meet. And Skyla says, well, it's my opinion, the couple needs a unique how we met story and then a lot of impossible obstacles that make it seem as though they'll never be together and then in the last minute in an unexpected twist by some bit of magic they end up together after all and i wanted this book despite all the twists and turns and darkness and surprises to end on a sweet note and a happy note and um i hope i did that well you mentioned greg kinnear um Shining Veil is now on stars. It is a very quirky show itself. So you do get stars and you want to see a really good cast. And the program is called Shining Veil, which I've been watching. This is the segment, part of the segment where I end with asking the guest, what did I miss and what did I get wrong? I don't think you missed anything at all. Oh, one thing you didn't ask me, but maybe you did, maybe you... I don't know that you missed it, but because it sounds like you got everything absolutely right. I'm so grateful for your nuanced reading of the book. But one thing um, some people notice, some people don't, is that I wrote myself as a character into this book. And I, I don't know I if saw you that. The writer you from did. New York City. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. So Skyla has a nephew named John. And it's funny, a reporter was interviewing me recently, and I, I said to, he kind of asked a similar question. I said, well, or it was a woman, and I said, I don't know if you noticed I wrote myself in. She said, oh, I didn't notice it. And I, when I pointed it out, she said, oh, maybe if your name is Xavier, something more like that would pop more. But John kind of just was, didn't right, right. stand out to her. But um, I don't know. I just wanted to try something different, and I knew Skyla needed to – She's basically the book is structured as her telling her story to her nephew – uh, that he writes down, we find out in the end. And so I thought, well, who would her nephew be? And then I thought, well, it makes sense for me to be the nephew and be writing the story. And so I put myself into the book, and then my editor said at one point, wait, is that you? And I, I don't know. There's probably some writer somewhere who's done the same, but it was – I just thought, let me try it and see what happens. And, and so far, it's been okay. I don't know. It's my first time writing myself into a novel. <laughs> no, I knew it was you. I was hoping it was you because, you know, <laughs> yeah. and I have – 20 more questions, but the segment has to end, but you have to come back. Yeah. Now, my guest is John Searles. His book is called Her Last Fair. John, thank you so much, and I'll see you again in Paris someday. In Paris. Thank you, Larry, in Paris. Yes. <laughs> this is the podcast, Arco Periscope. We're going to take a short break. Joining us will be the author of On the Trail of the Jackalope, Michael P. Branch. Be after the break. Stay with us. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. My guest in the second segment is Michael P. Branch. Wow, this book is amazing. The book is called On the Trail of the Jackalope, How a Legend Captured the World's Imagination and helped us cure cancer. What a main title and what a subtitle. And uh, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure, Larry. Thanks for having me. So I, I, this, I, I'm, look, I spent time with Thomas Steinbeck, John's son, which was a thrill for me because of who he was as writer himself and his father. And there's a quote that I found in your book. Hopefully I'm going to get it right. If not, please correct me. The quote is, Ideas are like rabbits. You get a couple of, of, of them and how to handle them, and pretty soon you have a dozen. So rabbits, and I put out, I put out the, the quiz early on when we started, what is a jackalope? So rabbits, and then we go to your book, Jackalope. So what is a jackalope? 
How fun. I love that John Steinbeck quote, and it really speaks to the idea that once you get obsessed with a particular thing that interests you, dimensions of it just open and open and open. You see that in Steinbeck's work, and uh, that's just been such a fun part of this project. So a, a jackalope in, in the kind of canonical origin story is this weird taxidermy mount that's made as a kind of joke, as a hoax, and it emerged from rural Wyoming in the 1930s, and it was made by a couple of teenage kids who were taking a correspondence course on taxidermy and just had this crazy idea that they would put these two things together. And what interests me is, you know, we can trace that jackalope hoax mount to these two kids in the 1930s, and yet now we see jackalopes everywhere in the names of sports teams and restaurants and food and music and art. And I just wondered, how did we begin with this weird idea that a couple kids had in Depression-era Wyoming, and now we see the jackalope everywhere? So that was sort of my mission, to set out to understand how that dissemination of the horned rabbit through culture actually took place. You know, in my family, we have a tradition that when a new child comes into the family, they get a book. So we always try to pass it along. So I'm thinking about uh, one book in particular, and that's Alice in Wonderland. And I wonder because Alice goes down the rabbit hole. So to what degree the Michael P. Branch have to go down the rabbit hole because this book is not it's demanding in the sense of the reader because there's a lot of information. It's rich with information. But you had – I maybe I'm wrong. My guess is you had to do an awful lot of research in terms of putting this book together. No, that's exactly right, Larry. And I, I in fact, used that idea of the rabbit hole throughout COVID when people said, how are you doing during COVID and how are you getting through this? I said, you know, I'm down in my horned rabbit hole and that's what's <laughs> keeping me going. I just emerged, you know, into this – fascination with a subject that turned out to be deeper and deeper and deeper. I also love that that allusion to Lewis Carroll and Alice in Wonderland because of the idea that, you know, we need to use our imagination to really engage with worlds beyond the world that's right in front of us. And when we think about jackalopes, we're dealing with a, uh, something that kind of, you know, it, it's mythic, it's folkloric, it's also scientific, but it really engages our imagination. So another quote, I'm full of quotes today. In there. <laughs> Boreas Sachs had this, he wrote, said this, and I'm quoting, but all imaginary animals, and to some degree, all animals are ultimately both monsters and wonders. Where did that quote come from, and why did you use it? You know, I, I love that insight. Um, this is from a guy who studies imaginary animals, and I love that quote because it really speaks to the sense of us being fascinated by things in the natural world and also finding it necessary to invent things that exist beyond the natural world. So in the book, I borrow this concept from Jorge Luis Borges of the necessary monster. I love that idea, the necessary monster. And Borges says, if you look at the folklore of any culture in the world, it's full of monsters. It's full of hybrid animals. And he sort of makes the point that these animals exist because there's something about the human imagination that requires them. So I have a lot of fun with the idea that jackalopes exist because there's something in us that needs them to exist. The quintessential monster, once again, going back to children, when they're in their bedroom and there's a monster under their bed or there's a monster in the closet and mommy and daddy have to come in to assure them there's no monster under the bed. There's no monster in the closet or outside your window. So that, to me, kind of touches upon that whole thing about monsters do play a role. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, from the time that we're kids, uh, our imagination needs to engage with the idea that there's something beyond the obvious, beyond the apparent. The reality that surrounds us is just just one world, and there's always a world beyond that, too. And I, I just love that idea that humans invent mythical animals because we need to believe that there is a world richer than the one we see every day when we roll out of bed. Why do you think we need that as, as, as a race of people? Why do we need that something beyond the world that we see and exist in? Why do we need something else to make us, in a sense, more than what we are? You know, Larry, I thought about that a lot during COVID, and I sort of came around to the to the idea that 
the pressures of our daily lives, especially at a time like this, when COVID has been such a pressure and the news is often difficult for us to deal with on a day-to-day basis, I think we need to have a fantasy life. We need to have an escape. And I actually think of reading and writing as being part of that fantasy, part of that escape. That, uh, for example, if you read a great novel, you're learning something about people, you're learning something about the world, but you also are getting beyond that world through an act of imagination. And I think that's the writer's job is to show us the world in a new way, but also help us to see beyond it with some other kind of imagining. When this podcast is for storytellers. When I do an event for the public, I always tell them a book in a sense can be a time machine, forward, present, future. And a book has the ability to take us where we physically can't go. So in that sense, during the course of your research, where did this book take you? <laughs> well, I traveled all over the place, Larry, and the kinds of people that I talked with about jackalopes varied as widely as you can imagine. So I, for example, went to this little town in Wyoming that considers itself the home of the jackalope and, you know, interviewed oil patch roughnecks and hunters and ranchers about what the jackalope meant to them. I also um, traveled to you know very rural parts of the country to interview the taxidermists whose craft is to create these things. But I also interviewed a lot of musicians and artists who are inspired by the jackalope and asked them questions about why that work was important to them. And then ultimately, the book also talks about real horned rabbits in nature. And that was the part of the book that led me to do lots of interviews with virologists and epidemiologists and to try to understand the relationship between the jackalope as a mythic character and the fact that there are actually these quote unquote horned rabbits that do exist in nature. So when the stranger comes into town, like the gunfighter looking for a fight in frontier America, because some of the places you go to really were, have a rich tradition in frontier America. You spent a lot of time in Wyoming, I believe in Iowa and Kansas and places like that. How did you engage them? You're the outsider. Why did they sit down and talk to you? Because what do you want from them? And what do they expect you know, you're going you're gonna to get from them and vice versa? You know, that's such a great question. And you, as a person who interviews people all the time and does it so well, I'm sure have thought about this also. But, you know, a documentary filmmaker friend of mine who I sought some advice from when I realized that this book was going to require lots and lots of interviews, I said, you know, how do you get people to open up to you? And he sort of laughed and said, well, it's a two-part strategy, but you have to have both parts. The first part is you ask somebody a question. But the second part is you shut up and listen. Right. And I think right. a lot of times when we talk with people, we forget that second part. So I, I found that people treated me with great hospitality and were willing to share their stories in great detail if they believed that I wasn't out to get something specific out of them, but that I really actually wanted to hear what they thought. And one of the things that was really charming about the project is People like to talk about jackalopes, and if you are open-minded and you're not trying to steer them in a particular direction for your own purposes, if you actually are a good listener, uh, people love to tell stories, and the jackalope is a phenomenon that's surrounded by stories. So once again, you led me perfectly to my next question for the conversation. When man first got language and got fire, and sat around, quote unquote, the campfire, they told stories. The oral tradition of storytelling is still with us today. Talk about nightmares and things like that. So let's touch upon mythology. I'm gonna give you a lot of stuff. Mythology, tall tales, folklore, scams, hoaxes, they're all in this melange that you stir up for your book on the trail of the jackalope. Well, I'll say, first of all, that that um, one of the most fun things about the jackalope is, you know, we think about the taxidermy hoax mount that started all this. And certainly there's lots of kits, right? Keychains and snow globes and shot glasses. And, you know, there, there's no end to the things that, that feature the jackalope. But what was most fun for me was the folk tales that surround the jackalope. And I think that's really in the American tradition, the, the tall tale, especially in the West. 
has been a big part of who we are as a people. So, you know, I, I would have people tell me these stories about jackalopes. Um, you know, jackalopes are so rare because they only mate during lightning storms or jackalope milk is a powerful aphrodisiac, but you don't want to try to milk a doe jackalope because it's too dangerous or jackalopes will harmonize along with you if you sing around the campfire or jackalopes can be attracted with a bowl of whiskey at night and you know as you talk to people out on the land there would be layers and layers and layers of these folk narratives that were carrying the jackalope forward and i just thought that was fascinating I mean, here's an animal that essentially does not exist but it exists in this rich body of folklore and and you mentioned mythology larry i think one of the things that what really opened my eyes in writing the book was to discover that there are traditions of storytelling about horned rabbits in other cultures around the world. Yes. They're not called jackalopes. They have different names in different countries. Uh, but that was fascinating to me, too, because it made me think, well, you know, what is it about us that um, causes us to need or to want to invent this animal and tell stories about it? So yeah, you're absolutely right. Storytelling is at the key of what I tried to, uh, core of what I try to do in the book, but it's also really key to understanding a phenomenon like the jackalope, which exists through our stories. In my family's a tradition of passing cars along back and forth. So the car I have right now is a 2003 Mercury Sable, which my parents, when they were alive, had it down in their condo in Pembroke Pines in Florida. It then went to a relative in San Diego. It then came back to my brother in New Jersey, and it finally came to me. Now, where am I going with this? This is not a travel walk, because <laughs> I've traveled across America multiple times. On the back at one point before it wore off was a sticker from Wall Drug in South Dakota, right? And yeah. I'm saying, I remember this sticker. I'm saying, why the hell did my brother have a sticker on his car from a drugstore in South Dakota? So there's a great story there, and I'm going to let you run with it. Oh, I mean, Wall Drug, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, has got to be the most spectacular roadside attraction in America. If you just imagine, I mean, drugstore doesn't begin to capture this place. It's, it's, it's immense, and it is full of every kind of, and I say this lovingly, every kind of junk you can possibly imagine, and it is so fun to visit there. Well, it turns out that Wall Drug has been selling jackalopes and jackalope stuff for at least 80 years. And so it, it becomes a kind of pilgrimage site for me. So I, I go to Wall Drug in South Dakota. I meet with the family, the Husteds who own it. And uh, we just have this wonderful conversation. And many of these interviews in the book, um, the folks that I spoke with become friends. So yeah, Wall Drug is so beloved that people actually are fond of taking pictures of themselves all over the world with signs that say 2,862 miles to Wall Drug. And, uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm proud to say that the family that owns Wall Drug now routinely mails me new jackalope t-shirts every time they come in. But if you ever want to have a crazy experience with a lot of um, kitschy junk that's also just spectacular and fun, Wall Drug is your spot. Here I am. I'm going to make a lot of enemies right now. I'm going to put in the same question, the Mona Lisa and the jackalope. Because... <laughs> When people look at the Mona Lisa, you can see a hundred different things. And when people look at the jackalope, you can see a hundred different things. And the connection is both of them at one point in history, the original mounting and the Mona Lisa had disappeared from where they were. <laughs> That's one of the most fun questions I've heard in any interview. So thank you for that. But what you're saying is absolutely right that you know, the way I sometimes put it is the jackalope is a window onto the culture. It teaches us some stuff about why we behave the way we do and what we think and what we fantasize about. Um, but it's also a kind of mirror. People see themselves in it. They see what they want to see. And so, as you know, in the book, um, every interview that I do, the very last question I ask people is, why do you think people love jackalopes? And it becomes really fun over the course of the book to see that Everybody loves this crazy thing, but their answers are wildly, wildly different. So you're right that the, the original jackalope disappeared from its spot, so it was mysterious in that sense. But yeah, the Mona Lisa is a kind of mirror, right? We stand before it and, you know, do we see sadness? Do we see beauty? Do we see inspiration? Do we see insight? And people see the jackalope and it reflects for them lots of different feelings. Some people love it because it's so fun and so funny. 
Uh, other people like it because they can use it as the subject for art. Yet other people like creating outrageous stories about vicious jackalopes that have right. attacked people they know. So, yeah, I love that idea of seeing so many different things in it. So let's go to the secondary title because this is also really important. We could go on and on. I wish we could about all the hoaxes and everything else in P.T. Barnum because it fascinates me. Edgar Allan Poe is mentioned in there. But let's get to the part where um, the legend can lead to a cure for cancer. That is so interesting that that's what it led to. So you want to just kind of share with us how this came about? Yeah, you bet. Um, you know, people are really familiar with the jackalope as a joke, but as I mentioned, it turns out that quote-unquote horned rabbits do actually exist in nature, and what happens is, Larry, these rabbits get these very strange growths on their heads that are caused by a virus, and so the last part of the book tells the story of how in the 1930s, at, at exactly the same time that these boys are making the first hoax jackalope mount in Wyoming, a world-famous virologist starts to study these horned rabbits, and by studying them, he's able to prove uh, that a virus can cause cancer in a mammal. And that's a really important scientific breakthrough because that leads us to be able ultimately to develop the HPV, the human papillomavirus vaccine, which is the safest, most effective anti-cancer uh, vaccine that we have. And so that, that kind of medical mystery that, that drives the last part of the book is is to me really fascinating because it, it shows us that scientific breakthroughs that are saving millions of lives wouldn't exist without the horned rabbit. So I love the way the horned rabbit can be both a joke and something that occurs in nature and, and led us to scientific breakthroughs, and it can do both at the same time. Now, I, I know a lot of people believe in assiduous research, getting their hands dirty in a sense. So the part of the book that I liked and there are a lot of parts that I liked. Is you go to San Francisco, you go to this place, and you take what kind of a course? You're a very brave man, and maybe you're too honest about your skills, because obviously you're a very skillful writer. But what kind of a course did you take over was it a, a seven-hour period or twelve-hour period? I don't. I know I'm, I'm probably missing the hours, but you'll let us know. Yeah, no, um, this was really a, a funny true story about the composition of the book. I was I was essentially done with the manuscript, and I thought, I've talked to everybody I know how to talk to. I've traveled. I've done archival research. I've, you know, I've done everything I can to see the jackalope from every angle. And then it dawned on me that the one stone that I had left unturned was that I hadn't tried to make a jackalope myself. So after having interviewed these jackalope taxidermists in South Dakota and Wyoming, I find myself at the end of the book with these hipsters in the Mission District of San Francisco in an eight-hour jackalope-making workshop. And it was really fun, but it was also sort of disconcerting. I realized, first of all, that I'm terrible at this. It's way, way harder than you would think. And that kind of gave me a new appreciation for the craftsmen who make these things. Um, but it also really did get me thinking about the fact that um, Jackalope kitsch is a different matter, but with the jackalope mount, you know, an animal dies to produce this joke. And so I, I think that it's the writer's job to be honest about these misgivings rather than to try to come up with, you know, packaged pat answers. So in that chapter, which really is a very fun and funny chapter, I do have a few moments where I really have some qualms about what I'm doing there. Right. Now, I um, watched a movie called Nightmare Alley which at the core is a, is a hoax. So if you don't mind, there are, I wrote down a bunch of them. What was your favorite or least favorite hoax in the book that you came across? Well, you're right that I do talk about hoaxes in the book, and I would just say quickly that I think we sometimes kind of misunderstand the hoax and, and don't do enough to separate it from a con, right? A con is when we try to fool somebody to get their money or their stuff, and we hope they never find out. But a hoax exists to be revealed. It's supposed to produce pleasure. We want to fool people, but not forever. And when they discover the joke, then they get to be in on it. And there's a, almost a kind of like community building aspect to that that I think is kind of neat. But my my favorite um, hoax in the book is just the, the many, many different versions of stories that people told me when they found out I was working on this book and said, oh, when I was a kid, 
my granddad used to always take me down to the VFW hall where they had a jackalope mount and he'd tell me all kinds of stories about that animal and his buddies would all chime in or people who say, yeah, I took my niece or my nephew on a jackalope hunt and I showed them how to look for the footprints. And so in other words, I liked the really gentle and good humored use of the jackalope as a way to um, string people along for a little while in the true tradition of the American tall tale and then ultimately welcome those people into the joke. You told me off air during the break that this was your first book, or maybe you said it on air. But why was this first book? Why did you decide now in your career? I think you have a background in, in environmental yeah. issues. I believe you're teaching, is that correct, in terms of it your is. background? So you can mm -hmm. share some of your background. But why did you decide, you know, when you sit down to write a book, it, any book. It's daunting. So why did you decide first to write the book and then this particular book? Yeah, actually, I've written a lot of books. This is my first book with this publisher, with Pegasus. Okay, thank you for the correction. Uh, all right. No, no, no problem at all. Um, I've written a lot of books, and a lot of my books uh, are about the American West in one way or the other. I'm also a humor writer, so a lot of my work is, is humor work. I love to write about animals. And I'm especially interested in places where nature and culture seem to meet in some strange, inexplicable way. So I think the reason I chose this topic at this stage of my writing career is I had written so much about environmental issues in the West. I had written a lot about animals and I had done a lot of humor writing. And when I thought about pursuing the jackalope, it really felt like it was in my wheelhouse because it combines those different interests. So in some ways, it, it is sort of a logical extension of some of my recent books. So in my mind, humor is therapeutic. So take yourself away from this book. And people can't see you, but you get a lovely smile. Yeah, and I love the engagement back and forth. Uh, who or what makes you laugh in your everyday life? Well, you know, I think laughter is a tool of survival. I, I honestly, I often say, you know, I couldn't get through a day without it. And I think it's interesting that, you know, you literally can't find a culture anywhere in the world now or in the past that didn't have humor. It, it exists because we need it. And, you know, that I think in some ways that was why I wanted to tackle the jackalope at this particular time. I mean, there are many things to feel um, discouraged by in the world right now. And yet humor um, kind of helps us not only to relax a little bit, to feel healthier, um, it bonds us with other people, but I also think humor is just sort of an affirmation that we're going to be able to get up tomorrow and keep going. If you can laugh at something, you can endure it. And I sort of think that one of the reasons people love the jackalope is it gives them a reason to laugh, uh, both together and on their own. And uh, I just don't think we can, speaking personally, I couldn't get through a day without laughter. And what I love most about being a humor writer is the idea of passing that gift along to other people. And to have people say to me sometimes, well, here, here's this terribly difficult thing that's happening in my life. But when I read your book, it helped me to get outside that for a little bit. Uh, that's just one of the most gratifying things that as a writer, you can hear. So Michael P. Branch, we end every segment with... What did I miss? What did I get wrong? Now, I know I got one thing wrong because I didn't, I didn't, and I should have because I haven't seen my notes. I didn't mention the other books. So once again, run with this before we say goodbye. What did I miss or what did I get wrong? Oh, I thought this was a terrific interview. I, I, you were right on, Larry, and your questions were fantastic. I, I think the only thing I would add, and you didn't miss or get anything wrong, is just, um, you know, for people to think about the fact that uh, in the U.S., we love our jackalope, but there are people around the world in other cultures who have horned rabbits of their own. And so when we think of the jackalope, I think it's good to just remember that, you know, there are global connections here. And the reason these horned rabbits exist in all these cultures is because we need them both to laugh and to, to feed our imaginations. So this has been a fantastic conversation. I can't thank you enough for having me with you. Well, I want to thank my previous guest, John Searles. His book is called Her Last Affair. And the guest in the second segment is Michael P. Branch. The book is called On the Trail of the Jackalope. I want to thank both of my guests. And Michael, once again, thank you for hanging in. We got a little bit of a late start, but you did a great job with this book. I think you know that. I don't have to tell you that, but I want to give you affirmation one more time because I believe, pats on the back, 
are as important as humor. We kind of need those touchstones and that kind of feedback from people in our own orbit and outside of that. So, Michael, thank you so much. That's really true, Larry, and the kind words are much appreciated. So thank you very much, and um, thanks also to Chris for helping to put this together. And uh, it's just been a pleasure to talk with you. So you guys take care of yourselves, and I'll look forward to hearing this when it's out. Till next time, I'm Larry Davidson, and we'll see you in Paris. Bye-bye. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro, sound editors and engineer, Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Tired to her kitchen chair, she broke-